This week, as I've been as I've been preparing, and uh, last week as I was looking at this passage, it's it's been daunting to think about preaching on the crucifixion of Christ, the the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ, and uh, I, I hope this morning, as we gather together, that we get some sense of the the gravity of this of this passage. Um, this passage is not, or this this sermon is not going to be filled with application and filled with um, discussion of all all the good things that we get because Jesus died. I trust you will see some of that. But my hope this morning is that we see what is in Christ, that we see Christ Himself. Uh, I've been reading recently a uh, book called The Whole Christ, and uh, at one point. Someone's quoted saying, you must first have Christ himself before you can partake of those benefits by him. Salvation is ours in Christ, in Christ through Christ. I'm going to use the mic. Salvation is ours in Christ, not just through Christ. And so this morning we want to labor to get into Christ. We're not going to be attempting to get Christ into us, but we want to get out of ourselves and into Christ. Because when we are in him, when we possess Christ himself, all, all spiritual blessings are ours immediately and simultaneously in him. And what, what joy this brings, what, what hope we have here. So a couple weeks ago I, I had posed the question, why do we have four, four gospels? Why doesn't God just give us just kind of one streamlined story that gives us beginning to end? And I answered that, the answer to that question really lies in, in the glory of God. One, one account of the, the person and work of Jesus Christ cannot fully encompass the glory of God. He is far too glorious to be understood through that one, one lens. We need the fourfold witness of the gospel to begin to see his glory. Now, the same is true of the cross, the climax of each of the four gospel accounts. But the cross is not just the focal point of each gospel. It's the center of all of Scripture. All of God's Word is either pointing forward to this moment, to this day, or pointing back to it in some way. Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says this, Like the person, the work of Christ is so multifaceted that it cannot be captured in a single word nor summarized in a single formula. In the different books of the New Testament, therefore, different meanings of the death of Christ are highlighted, and all of them together help to give us a deep impression and a clear sense of the riches and many-sidedness of the mediator's work. The glories at Calvary are far too rich and far too glorious for us to, to capture in one, one look. And so as we come to God's word to behold the crucified Jesus, we must keep this in mind. God the Holy Spirit through John the Apostle seeks to draw out certain realities about Jesus Christ. Christ is to be seen in a certain way here, in a certain light. And this doesn't negate any of the other descriptions of our crucified Savior. It only, it only adds to him. It only provides more color to the picture. The reality is we will never plumb the depths of the cross. We cannot comprehend in just one look or even in a thousand all that there is here at the cross. We will never see all that there is to see at Calvary. But this morning, let's work to catch a glimpse together of the glory here.
Let's see today what, what John wants us to see as we behold the crucified Christ. We know why John writes this gospel. He writes these things that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. The key this morning as we look to the crucifixion as recorded by John is not in looking at the sufferings and terror of the cross, but in looking at the one who was crucified. We could give ourselves this morning to contemplate, contemplating the physical, emotional, and spiritual torment that confronted Jesus on the cross. We could be stirred to tears by looking at the horrors as we try to understand in some measure what it means to be crucified, what it means to face the wrath of God. But that's not John's primary purpose. John doesn't just give us a gut-wrenching account of the agony. He doesn't want us to only see the cross that we miss the one who hung on it. John writes so that we see Jesus, so that we see Christ. Because it's in beholding the one who was crucified, dead and buried, that we have hope for eternal life. Beholding, not the cross, but the one who hung there, gives us hope for eternal life. So we want to labor to see Jesus this morning. So let's look now at John 19, at who, who John shows us hung on that cross. And we'll begin in the end of verse 16, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is John chapter 19. So they took Jesus, they being the Roman soldiers, they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, 
The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This day was unlike any other the world had ever seen. This day, these these moments, these hours here are the center point of all of human history. For it's here that man can find salvation. It's here that God makes a way for humanity to be reconciled to God. All of salvation history leads up to this moment. And all of eternity finds hope here. Jesus goes out carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Just like Isaac in Genesis 22. Jesus went out bearing his own cross. He went out to the place of a skull, in Aramaic known as Golgotha, in Latin that's known as as Calvary. He went out to Calvary. Jesus would have likely carried the horizontal bar of the cross as he went, and in his humanity he would have staggered under its weight. The other gospel accounts tell us of Simon the Cyrene, who was called out to help Jesus carry the cross for part of the way. So Jesus would have carried the cross out of the city, and then would have been placed on, on Simon to go the rest of the way. But John doesn't include that because that's not his concern here. He wants us to see something else. As Jesus reaches Golgotha, he would have been made to lie down on his back. His arms stretched across the horizontal bar of the cross. His arms would have been tied and nailed into this bar. He then would have been lifted up and the, the horizontal bar of the cross would have been fastened to a vertical bar already standing in the ground. And his feet would have been nailed to the upright cross. This vertical bar would have had a a small seat that could support some of the body's weight. But this was not to relieve any pain. This was meant to prolong the pain, to prolong the suffering. The cross as a method of capital punishment as a method of execution, was meant to to agonize and to humiliate and to shame and to ultimately kill and to warn all those that see of the power that those who rule had. 
It was unbearably effective. As we walk through this passage, we want to have eyes to see the man, the God-man who hung on that cross. God's sovereign rule is on display at every turn in this passage. Every turn of phrase contains some significance as to the, the sovereign rule and reign of God. Each verse, each verse points us to Christ, and as we look to him, as we behold him, we can have hope for life. We can have hope for eternal life as we look at the death of Christ. And we're going to look together at, at three pictures that John puts forth of Jesus Christ in these hours, and we'll look at them successively here. Number one, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus, the man who hung on the cross, Jesus is the sovereign king. The theme of Christ's kingly rule has been pronounced throughout John's passion narrative. We saw it as Jesus came forth from the garden to be arrested. We saw it as the arresting party fell back at the revelation that I am was before them. We saw it as Jesus came before Pilate last week, and Jesus tells Pilate in in verse 11 of chapter 19, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. All that Pilate is doing is under the control of God. Pilate, you can't do anything apart from the power that I give you. All that anyone is doing, from the Jewish leaders to the Roman soldiers that are crucifying Jesus, is under the sovereign rule of God. John has been showing us that the enemies of Jesus, those seeking to destroy and kill him, are the very ones that God uses to carry out his purpose, to carry out his will. He uses the, the enemies to carry out his will. And then here in our passage today, we see the sovereign king go out, bearing his own cross. And as Jesus hangs there, there's a sign fixed atop the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This sign was hung there for all to see, and Pilate meant it to, to mock the Jews, mock anyone who might hope in Jesus Christ. He put three languages on this sign. It was written in Aramaic, which was the, the local language. It was written in Latin, which was the language of the government. And it was written in Greek, which was the, lang- the common language of the people. So anyone, travelers, local residents, Roman soldiers, everyone there would have seen this declaration. Here hangs the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of God's chosen people. And he reigns from, from this throne, the cross. Caiaphas and Pilate, the two men most responsible for and involved in the death of Jesus, were the two men God chose to be his prophets. Caiaphas, back in John 11, talked about that it's better for one man to die for the people. That's what Caiaphas said as he was dead set on killing Jesus. Pilate declares that Jesus is the king as he sees him crucified. We see Christ's sovereignty again in the, the next scene as Christ's clothes are divided up among the soldiers. This was a normal practice during crucifixion. The, the men that crucified these criminals were allowed to take the clothes of these men. And its recording here would seem innocuous, but as Christ hangs, as Christ hangs naked and bleeding on the cross, his sovereign rule is manifested, even in what the soldiers are doing in their spare time. 
Verse 24, look with me. At the end there, it says, This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. That last phrase, it's like they didn't have any other option. Of course they did these things. It was, this is what God intended to fulfill his scripture. John makes clear that there was no other option but to fulfill scripture. We see his sovereign reign here. The scripture quoted here is, is Psalm 22. And this is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Nearly a thousand years before Christ was crucified, God so sovereignly orchestrated the life and the anguish of David that he penned the words of Psalm 22. The psalm begins with the the familiar cry that Jesus makes from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the the scene that we see here is taken from Psalm 22, verses 16, 16 through 18. This is what David describes a thousand years before Christ was crucified. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Marvel at the God who works all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Behold the one who does not even let the actions of men placing the nails in the arms of Jesus. He does not even let their actions fall outside of his sovereign rule and reign. He is in control of everything. Even at death, Jesus exercises his sovereign reign. Look at the way John describes these final moments in in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. This English phrase that we see here is, It is finished, doesn't fully grasp the significance of what, of Jesus' declaration. There was a work that God the Father gave the Son to do. This work was to bring salvation and redemption to God's people. Christ's cry from the cross isn't just, it is finished, but it it is accomplished. It is done. All that the Father has given Christ to do, he has done it. He has accomplished his work once and for all. And as the king, as the king of God's chosen people hangs from his wooden cross with his thorny crown, he declares that he has done what he came to do. Jesus, as the sovereign ruler, knew all that was coming, and he went forward. He knew that all was accomplished and fulfilled scripture. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Caiaphas didn't kill Jesus. Pilate didn't kill Jesus. The Roman soldiers didn't kill Jesus. Jesus gave up his spirit. He evidenced his divine divine control, his sovereign prerogative at every moment here. Now the final scene of our passage depicts the burial of, of Jesus. Two men, two prominent men of, uh, of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they buried Jesus. The fact that these two men came to bury Jesus is remarkable in and of itself. See how, how John identifies them. Joseph of Arimathea says in verse 38, who was a disciple of Jesus, 
but secretly for fear of the Jews. So while Jesus was living and ministering, Joseph was not bold enough to follow Christ publicly. But here, when there is not anything seemingly to be gained from identifying oneself with Jesus, he boldly approaches Pilate and asks Pilate for his body. Joseph honors him and shows himself to be a true disciple in Christ's death. And then in verse 39, John says this, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. This is the Nicodemus that Jesus interacts with in John 3 at night. Again, didn't want to be associated with him publicly during his life, but now when there is nothing seemingly to be gained by associating with Jesus, when all of Jesus' followers have left him, Nicodemus comes with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to bury Jesus. These two prominent men came to bury Jesus. They didn't view him as the Jews did or the Romans did as a worthless criminal, but they came to give Jesus a burial fit for a king. 75 pounds was an inordinate amount for anyone to be buried, let alone a, a criminal who would not have received any kind of burial. But they bring these myrrhs and aloes and spices to honor the body of a king. They made kingly provision for the corpse of Jesus. At every turn of this entire narrative, Jesus is shown to be the sovereign king. Jesus is shown to be in control at every step, fulfilling every scripture, actively choosing his path over over and against all else. So for us, let us then labor to know Christ as our king. He is a king whose kingdom is not of this world. Let us obey him as he is, and let us live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. J.C. Ryle says this, They only will find him their savior at the last day, who have obeyed him as king in this world. So give him your allegiance. Give him your thoughts and your energies. Let all that you do be done in reverent worship of Christ the king. Because there is a day coming when every eye will behold him for who he is. And every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And this is what the tongues will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Live today in light of that reality, in light of who Christ really is. He is the King. Jesus is the sovereign King reigning from the cross. John shows, us, shows Jesus to be the sovereign King. He also shows Jesus to be a compassionate Savior, the compassionate Savior. We look at verses 25 through 27. John records an unusual scene. He says this, But standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Look here who, who was gathered at the cross. Five people are mentioned in this scene. First we see Mary, the mother of Jesus himself. Looking on at the battered and brutalized body of her son, whom she bore. Think of the the anguish in her soul as her son hangs, nailed to the cross, being crucified as a criminal. And the next woman identified is Mary's sister. And this woman is actually mentioned in both Matthew 
and Mark. Mark identifies this woman and gives her a name. He says it's Salome. And in Matthew, this same woman, Salome, is there identified as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This woman was the mother of James and John, the disciples. Yes, this, this very John who pens this gospel, his mother was standing at the foot of the cross, the sister of Mary. She was the one who came and asked Jesus if James and John could sit at Christ's right hand and left hand. This woman was Jesus' aunt, Mary's sister, John's mother, and she is here at the foot of the cross. The two other woman, women mentioned here are Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There's not much said to be said of the, the former, apart from what John here records, and we'll be hearing more about Mary Magdalene later on next week. The fifth person mentioned here is this beloved disciple. This disciple is no doubt John himself. He stood by his mother, his aunt, and looked on himself in horror as Jesus was stricken. Remember what what Christ faced as he hung on the cross. Think of the, the physical torment and abuse, the humiliation and anguish, but yet while he hangs nailed to the cross, he is mindful to comfort and care for those who are his. From the cross, he makes provision for his mother and for John. From the cross, Jesus makes a new community. He makes a new family. Feel the compassion and care and love that Christ has for those who are his. The heart for Christ made provision for Mary from the cross. And this is a heart that does not change. It's the same heart that Christ has for us today. The compassionate heart of Jesus on the cross is the same today as it was then with Mary. And in some sense, this is a a mini parable. Just as Christ made provision for his mother at the cross, so he makes provision for all those who believe in him through the cross. It's here that not only does he show compassion to Mary, but he shows compassion for us because it is here that his mercy and his love, they pour forth. Here Jesus lays down his life on our behalf for our sins. One man dies for us and through this work pours out every blessing in the heavenly places on us. Paul talks about some of these blessings in Ephesians 1. He says, in him he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. These are blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. One hymn writer penned it this way, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul, what wondrous Love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What wondrous love he has shown us through the cross. John shows Christ to be the king. John shows Christ to be our compassionate savior. And John shows Christ to be the lamb of God. The final picture of Jesus that we will look at this morning is that of the lamb. 
All that is taking place happens at the, a central point in Jewish life, the Passover. The Passover commemorated the angel of the Lord passing over Egypt and killing every firstborn son. But there was provision made. By killing a lamb and putting that lamb's blood on your doorpost, your son could be spared. In Exodus 12, this is what God tells Moses and Aaron. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. After Israel was delivered that next day by the hand of God from their bondage in Egypt, the Lord instituted the remembrance of this occasion. And every year, the Jews would gather to remember the time that God passed over them because of the blood of this lamb. And to commemorate that, one of those things they did was slaughtered sheep in the temple. And as this was taking place, as these sheep were being slaughtered in the temple, the Lamb of God was being slaughtered outside of Jerusalem. What Israel failed to recognize with this, this Passover, this, this commemoration of this event, the remembrance of this event, that wasn't, wasn't the point. The point was to point to Jesus. All that took place in Israel's history was meant to point forward to this moment, to the one who once and for all would deliver God's people from bondage by his blood. In Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, God instructs the people to not break one bone of this lamb's body. I think you'll see them up here maybe. The scriptures, Exodus 12, 46 says, and you shall not break any of its bones. Numbers 9, 12 says, they shall leave none of the lamb until the morning, nor break any of its bones. Why? Why does it matter whether one of this lamb's is, bones is broken? I mean, they're, they're killing this lamb. They're eating its meat. They're putting its blood on the doorpost. Why does it matter if its bones are broken? It's really for no other reason than that we might recognize the true lamb of God when he comes. In John 19, 31 through 33 in our passage, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Crucifixion, it would take days for someone to die. It was a prolonged and torturous agony. And so to speed up this process, the legs of, of the one crucified would be broken so that they could no longer support themselves and they would die much quicker. But they didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. These, 
This is the last time the Jews are mentioned in John's gospel, and they were more concerned that their land not be defiled than they were concerned that their, they would be defiled, they themselves would be defiled by their, their deed. Not one of his bones was broken. Christ indeed is the, the Lamb of God. Back in John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the sent one of God, is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the substitute that atones for our sins. This theme of substitution, of Christ being the one that takes our place, comes up again and again and again in John's depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. In verse 18, Christ is crucified between two criminals. It says, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Steph Wethje actually quoted Isaiah 53 this morning, that he was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus was counted among the sinners. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 28, when Jesus says, I thirst, he thirsts for us. Jesus, this Jesus, the one by whom all things were created, as Colossians 1 tells us, he is the word that went forth. They gathered the waters into place at the creation of the world. Jesus, this Jesus, is the rock of our salvation. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that this is the rock who was struck at at Meribah, which sent forth water that preserved the people of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus, the river of life, is the one who came to give water to the thirsty so that they would never thirst again, as he told the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus, the sovereign king, said on the cross, I thirst. And he became thirsty that we might never thirst again. In verse 34, John records this. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. More than 500 years before this moment, God told of the coming day of salvation through the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah 12.10 says this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And a few verses later, Zechariah says, God says through Zechariah, On that day there shall be a fountain, a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The side of Jesus was pierced. Not one of his bones was broken so that we might look and know that this is the one that has come to make atonement for us. John here uses the law what happened in Exodus and Numbers, the Torah, the book of Moses, to testify that this is the one. John uses the prophets, Zechariah, to testify to it. And here, John himself testifies to it. All that he is writing is so that we might see and believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, we may have life in his name. He wants us to know that this, this is the Christ, the King, the compassionate Savior, the Lamb of God who has come into the world to take away the sins of the world. And this Jesus who hung there, he is our hope for salvation today. I've heard some, some say, and perhaps you have as well, that you can be too fixated on the cross, too concerned about his death. What do we do with this? How do we respond? Well, as a, as a church and as your pastors, we are committed to centering where the Bible centers. We don't want to give ourselves to what we want the Bible to say or think the Bible should say, but we want to lay out what the Bible actually says. The Christ hanging on the cross as the sacrificial lamb making atonement for our sins is that which the Bible points forward to, as we have seen. The Christ hanging on the cross is that which the New Testament unpacks book after book and expounds upon in each revelation throughout the New Testament. The body broken and the blood shed is the, the sacrament that the church is given to remember Christ by. We're to remember him by his death. And the crucified Jesus, the crucified Jesus is the centerpiece of all eternity as we get a glimpse of worship around the throne of heaven in Revelation. Yes, Jesus, the risen and reigning king, the lion of Judah, whose work salvation for his people, he is the sacrificial lamb. In Revelation 5, they're looking for someone to, to open the scroll, to usher the world into the eschaton, into the, the last days, into eternity. Who is that one? Well, it says in Revelation 5, 5, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And then this one appears, this Lion of the tribe of Judah, this Root of David, this conquering king. He appears not as a lion, Instead, as a lamb, as though it had been slain. And this is the declaration around the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then all around the throne, this is the song that declares, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus Christ as the slain lamb is the primary depiction of Christ in heaven in Revelation. 28 times throughout Revelation, we see the lamb referenced. The lamb fights and conquers evil. The lamb shepherds his people. The lamb is the lamp that gives light to the city. Mark Dever says this, for the Lamb to be the lamp of the city of God means that the thought of the Son of God made flesh and slaughtered for our sins in order to save us will never leave the minds of glorified saints as they fellowship with the Father and the Son and will frame all their thinking about everything else. As Christians on this side of eternity, we don't live for this world. Our hope isn't in anything that takes place in the next election cycle or in new laws. Our hope isn't in better technology or the cure for cancer. Our hope is not in having more money or more stuff. Our hope is in the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. 
Our hope is in the compassionate Savior who's never changing, never failing love. Not because of who we are or what we do, but in spite of us. Because of this love that he has shown, our hope is in the sovereign king who will rule and reign forevermore. Our hope is in the shed blood of Christ. So fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on the lamb who was slain. Because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And, and there, sinners, there are sinners plunged beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stains. All our sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus. This morning we declared through song, Jesus, Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. What is in Christ? What is in the crucified King? What is in this compassionate Savior, the Lamb of God? What is in him is far better than anything this world has to offer us. It's far greater. It's far more beautiful. It's far richer than all else. In the crucified Christ, we have hope for eternal life. We have hope in every situation. One of my favorite hymns is this and begins this way. My song is love unknown. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I? Who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? And the hymn concludes with this. Here might I stay and sing. No story so divine. Never was love, dear King. Never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Oh, church, Grace Church, brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on the Lamb of God who was slain for you. His love was the same the day that he saved you as it is today. His love is never failing and never changing. The grace that pours forth from, from Calvary is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's that grace that we rejoice in. It's that love that we hope in. He is our Lamb, the great I Am. And it's in Him we hope. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we, may we never grow tired of looking at the cross. May we love to, to pick up these, these scenes of your, of your death, your burial, your resurrection. May we, may we look at them and, and turn them and never tire, grow tired of the, the thousands of gazes that we take. Because it's here that we see the, the glory and the beauty of who you are. May we be citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And may we be used to glorying in the lamb that was slain. May we bask in the light of the world who was slain for us. Well, we hope in you. We fix our eyes on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.